1: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all of these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea, however, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives, I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks! Alrighty, hello everybody and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week I have uh, Northern Naturalist, also known as Emma Luck, here with me this week. How are you doing, Emma?
0: I'm doing pretty good.
1: Awesome. I'm excited to have you. I've had a couple people request that I have you on the podcast and then you came highly recommended by Kendra Nelson. So she's been on here so our listeners know who she is as well. So we're excited for you to be here.
0: Yes, it should be fun.
1: Awesome. Um, So tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and like, who is the Northern Naturalist?
0: (laughs) So I grew up in South Central Alaska in a small town known as Homer. And Homer is situated right on uh, a place called Kachemak Bay, which Mm -hmm. is a small little inlet that kind of juts in to the Kenai Peninsula within Cook Inlet. And uh, when I was growing up, um, I had really great parents. You know, I had, I had access to the beach. My mom took me tide pooling. And that's pretty much where my interest in marine life and the ocean started. Um, I really can't remember wanting to be anything other than a marine biologist. Um, and so, you know, like I said, ever since I was a kid, that's been something I've been interested in. And then probably around high school is when I started getting interested into marine mammals and more specifically whales because up until that point I you know I had a really strong interest in marine life but I hadn't really picked any one group or species to focus on and ironically enough I had been to SeaWorld a few times as a kid I had seen wild whales just out in Ketchamak Bay growing up but I really wasn't interested in whales dolphins or anything until I saw uh, the movie Big Miracle, mm-hmm. which is like the Hollywood retelling of the true story of three gray whales that got trapped in sea ice up in Ukiavik, which is the most northern city in Alaska. And I remember I went to go see this movie, not because I was interested in the whales, but because I knew they had filmed parts of it in Alaska, and I just wanted to see how accurate they had gotten it. <laughs> um, so that's the only reason why I wanted to go see it so I went and saw it in movie theaters and then I left going like why the heck do people care about whales so much because the whole gist of the story was three gray whales got trapped in ice way up in the arctic and both the people in Ukiyavik uh, the native, native Alaskans and then pretty much everyone from all around the world came together to help free these whales from the ice um, including this is during the height of the cold war and you know the soviet union and the u.s worked together to free those whales and i just remember thinking why the heck do people like whales so much mm-hmm. so that led to me going out buying a bunch of books doing a bunch of reading you know one thing led to another and i got really interested in whales went out on a whale watching trip got really interested in orcas um, once i learned how photo identification works and then from that point on it was just like whales every day, all the time, in any any way, shape or form, I was just whales.
1: I was um, just whales. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and so I knew I was always gonna go to college to get a degree in marine biology. And I went to uh, the University of Alaska Southeast in Juneau, and I graduated from there in 2019. And while I was going to college in the summer months, I worked as a marine naturalist on tour boats in Kachemac Bay. And Kachemac Bay is pretty unique because there are whales there every year, but what species of whales you're going to see and how often you're going to see them changes. Mm -hmm. So some years you might see whales every single day. So my first year as a naturalist, we saw humpback whales every single day of the season, but we didn't see any orcas Mm -hmm. like at all. Then the next year, less humpbacks, more orcas, And then it just, it changes so much. So there's not like a strong whale watching presence in the Bay, but um, it was just enough that we would see them every now and then. Mm -hmm. So while I was doing that, um, I'm also really interested in wildlife photography. So I was taking photos of the whales for photo ID purposes. So I also was contributing to some of the research projects in the area. And so that is where I kind of learned how to become a naturalist. And then let's see. uh, Then I graduated and the summer after I graduated in 2019, um, my former academic advisor, she approached me and was interested in knowing if I wanted to go to Norway that winter to participate in a pilot project to assess how uh, whale watching might be impacting the behavior of the killer whales and the humpback whales there because it's pretty much not regulated at all and Mm -hmm. the industry there is growing. So there's been some concern over how that might be impacting them. So um, that winter packed up my bags, went to Norway. I was there for a little under two months and I was working with a local whale watching company just to do like a small scale pilot study to see like what would work, what wouldn't in terms of data collection to assess and answer that question basically. Awesome, how did you study that? So it was really tricky. Um, it was just a pilot project. So the, the, the goal was just to figure out, you know, can we even answer the question that we're asking? And if we can, how are we gonna do it? So I reviewed a lot of papers that were trying to answer the same question and basically trying to determine which methods you know, those researchers used, if they would be applicable in Norway. Mm-hmm. And the tricky thing about Norway is in the winter time, that's when you have the whale watching season. Mm -hmm. And in the Arctic, that means you don't really have any sunlight for most of the winter. And the weather there is mild compared to other places in the Arctic, but it's still winter. There's still a lot of snowstorms, And so that made it pretty difficult, but um, after doing some troubleshooting and trying different things out, basically the best method that I could use while I was there, were ethograms, mm-hmm. um, which are basically categories of behavior that you assign to whatever a group or an individual animal is doing in the moment. And so what I would do is we would find a group of whales. Ideally, we really wanted to find them before there were other boats around them, because one of the hardest parts of determining, you know, if and how boats are having an impact is you need to understand what the whales are doing there's no boats around at all and that's hard to do because often your platform of research is also a boat. Um yeah. so you have to kind of acknowledge that there's going to be some impact you're having but you try to minimize it as much as you can
1: mm-hmm. to get kind of a
0: baseline and so for that we would try to stay 50 to 100 yards away um, stay parallel to the whales make sure we weren't doing something that was going to cause them to change their behavior. So it was, We would. I would try to assess what the whales were doing in the distance before we approached mm-hmm. and hopefully make sure that they stayed doing that when we got a little bit closer to get a better look. Um, and that was hard to do because 99% of the time there were already boats around the whales when we found them. Um, makes sense. And
1: were they not close enough to land to where you could observe them from land?
0: Yeah, we thought about, like a land-based point, because that is what other studies do. They use the satellites to triangulate you know, positions between boats and whales and the point of land you're on. But in that area, uh, Chavoy, there's really not a good spot to do that. Um, mm-hmm. It's also really dark. So if you're observing up on a cliff from a good distance away, that's that's easy to do if it's light out, but it's not really light. <laughs> right. Um, we only had about maybe two hours of dim light to work with every day. Whoa. So, yeah.
1: okay. So then how can people see the whales?
0: It's light enough that you can see what they're doing. It's just difficult to assess when they're farther away. So um, I went there at the beginning of November and I left towards the end of December. And in the, in early November, which is like like the peak of the season kind of, you have a few hours of daylight still. And when I say daylight, I don't mean like sun way up in the sky, perfect blue skies. It's like kind of like a perpetual sunset almost, Mm. but it's enough. And that is typically when they would try to have a lot of the snorkeling tours, because once it gets too dark, the water is dark, no matter what, but when it gets really dark, it's really hard to see once you're in the water. Um, and then, then in December, um, I remember the, the sun went down, I think it was like November 24th when I was there and it still hadn't technically risen even when I left. Mm. So you get a, like a two, two and a half hour window where you have just residual light kind of from the sun, just as it, it doesn't even come above the horizon, but it's enough that you can kind of see, uh-huh. but it's hard to take photos. <laughs> That's
1: insane. And people get in the water with snorkeling gear at night with org well not at night but like while it's dark with orcas might
0: as well be night (laughs) hey oh my Uh, gosh yeah so norway is as far as i know it's the only country where you can go and book like a snorkel tour with the whales and they there's a bunch of different companies there um some of them do day trips so you have like a three-hour trip where you go out and try to snorkel um Then you also have multi-day trips where you might stay at a cabin and you have uh, different excursions every day. You get multiple chances to go snorkeling. And then they also have live aboard boats where you're actually staying on a large ship and you're doing your snorkeling uh, from smaller boats that they launch Mm. over multiple days. That's wild.
1: I've never heard of ecotourism like that anywhere else because obviously in the U.S. we can't get in the water with the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's crazy. So, okay. So did you guys end up being able to conduct your study and find information?
0: It. We did get some data. Um, it was not enough to publish. Um, mm-hmm. It was very rough, how mm-hmm. I would describe it. Um, mostly because we didn't have a good way at the time to measure a lot of different variables at once. So I really was interested in seeing, okay, you know, how does proximity from the boat to the whale impact their behavior? How does speed impact it? How does the number of boats impact it? But that's really hard to do all at once when you're just one person. Definitely. On the boat I was on, it was a whale watching boat, uh, topside only, no snorkeling. Um, So I was the only one collecting this data at the time. And I had to kind of pick which variable that was gonna be the most important one to focus on. And I talked with my, acad- my former academic advisor and we eventually settled on uh, number of boats and uh, estimated distance. So there's no like hard or fast rule in Norway as to how close you're allowed to get to the whales. Um, you know, a lot of places in the US there are actual defined limits to how, far how close you can get. There are sets of guidelines in Norway that some of the, like, the local tourism uh, agency in, like, Tromso tries to promote these boats to follow. And if I remember correctly, it's, like, 50 yards that they recommend you stay as far away from, which is still really close compared to, you know, some of our regulations in the U.S.
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um, That's crazy. What kind of whales are over there? Are they residents or...?
0: So the whales that are in Norway, the killer whales, at least they are type one North Atlantic killer whales, and they're they're different from residents or different from transients. Um, they're actually pretty interesting whales. You know, I, most of my experience has been with uh, resident killer whales in Alaska. So going there and watching how they behave, what they look like was really different. And when they're in Norway, they're they're in these fjords, and they're there because there's a massive abundance of herring. So in the wintertime, the herring migrate from coastal Norway into these, these Arctic fjords and they overwinter there. And so the, the killer whales follow them in. And from what the from what some of the researchers there have been able to determine is that some of the whales in Norway they, they'll eat the herring, but then later in the year they'll also eat seals. So they're oh. able to uh, the switch. And some of them, rather than there being like a hard and fast this is a mammal eating whale, this is a fish eating whale. It seems like it's more of a gradient. Okay. Where some whales probably just eat fish, some, wh- some whales probably just eat seals, but there's like this intermediate zone where they probably eat both. Okay. So, um, But they were only eating uh, herring when I was there. I did hear one report of them going after a harbor porpoise. I didn't get to see it, okay. uh, but that did happen. So that was pretty interesting to hear about. Wow
1: that's fascinating I don't know much about honestly like I know about the whales that we have here in the United States but I don't know much about the other types of orcas so that's really interesting um so why like I, I'm just like I don't understand the logic behind wanting to get I feel like that sounds so scary to get in the water when it's dark with killer whales like where where did who came up with this idea?
0: you know I I don't off the top of my head I don't know how long that industry has been going on um I do know it's it's fairly recent okay um because the other thing with with the killer whales in Norway is that the whale watching area each year has changed so the, the whales go where the herring go so for a long time um it was in it's been in different parts of Norway farther south and that's where you'd have these whale watching kind of opportunities in the last i think five or so years the herring have decided to stay in that wintering area around Shervoy, and it's 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 fairly accessible um you can drive there from the nearest large city which is tromso and uh it's just you can just do a day trip if you want so Mm -hmm. if you fly into tromso you're like i want to go whale watching you can just hop on a bus or a boat there and go up to Shervoy whale watch and then come back in time for dinner um wow so it's, it's made it a little more accessible, it seems. And since the whales have stayed in that area, it seems that it's allowed more companies to, to start up and stay there because in the past, you know, if the whales move, you got to move your whole operation somewhere else. Yeah. And um, I think another thing that's made it really popular in recent years is social media. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, if you're on Instagram or Facebook or whatever platform you see a lot of photos and videos of people in the water with the orcas and before I went there I really wanted to do that like it looked fantastic mm-hmm. and when I went I thought I might get the opportunity to do that but then I went and I saw how this was all happening and I very quickly decided I did not want to get all- <laughs> the whales.
1: Um, what made you come to that decision?
0: Well, it was a couple things. Um, mostly, I was really concerned with how I saw these these tours operating, and um, it's not just one company or, you know, certain people doing it. It just seems like it's just a general, the way, the way it works, it's just not very conducive to operating responsibly about around the whales, because... Often what I saw happen is in these small Zodiac or rib boats, you know, you had a bunch of people that were ready to go swim with the whales. And Mm -hmm. the problem is that the success of that happening seems to depend largely on what the whales are doing. So if they're in one spot and they're feeding, it seems like they don't get as bothered by boats Mm -hmm. as opposed to when they're trying to travel or when they're trying to rest. So what I saw was a lot of whales that were spending time traveling um and you would get these boats that would have to get really close to the whales to drop people in because the water is really dark you don't have right. good visibility so if you want a chance at actually getting to see the whale in front of you you need to get pretty close mm-hmm. um so I saw a lot of boats going at high speeds towards groups of whales at angles that were not good you know generally when you're whale watching you want to try to stay parallel to the whales you don't want to be directly in front of them and probably not directly behind them if you could help it or mm-hmm. coming at them directly from the side and right. um, I saw a lot of that and I saw a lot of whales displaying evasive maneuvers, so they would change their direction of travel uh, they would dive for long periods of time and they would have erratic movements so they would go one direction for a minute they would change and go like the other way and there was no it was really hard to predict what they were going to do, which is generally a sign that they're probably trying to shake you. You know, mm-hmm. they're probably trying to get you to go away. And it just, it didn't look like, you know, the whales were that interested most of the time. And it, it you know, I, I hesitate to use the term harassment in a lot of cases, because there's a lot of different variables that can go into how a whale is behaving or reacting. But in a lot of cases, it did seem like harassment. Mm. Um, now, I did see a couple of instances where it seemed like it was, it was fine. Um, I remember watching one snorkeling boat. The whales were staying in the general area. They were just kind of milling around. They weren't doing anything in particular, it seemed. And they just stopped their boat and they put people in the water. And then they waited to see if the whales would come to them. And the whales did. The whales swam right by them then kind of swim around them and then they kept on going. And that seemed like a totally fine interaction. You know, the whales decided to go look at them and then they left when they wanted. It wasn't like throwing people in the water, hoping they land next to a whale, you know? Right. Um, and the other thing is that, and this was more of the case I saw with the private boaters because it wasn't just whale watching companies that were there. It was people in their own boats. Getting in the water with killer whales. Mm-hmm. And I saw uh, a lot of really kind of scary instances. You know, it's really dark and people are in dark wet suits and you're supposed to have a dive flag up when you have people in the water. And some of these private boats didn't have a dive flag. Couldn't really tell there were people in the water. Um, I watched one boat try to go pick up their divers and he backed up like propeller on, propeller first towards the oh, divers to no. get them and, that freaked me out. <laughs> so that was more of the case with like the people in their own boats, more so than on like the professional operators, but Jesus. Um yeah. So I after that I was kind of like, yeah, I don't I don't <laughs>
1: think I'm get it <laughs> I feel like valid. I feel like from even just the rec boater standpoint of like if the rec boaters don't know how to act, it's not worth getting in the water with the rec boaters. That's insane. So yeah. how many companies would you estimate are out there, or maybe how many boats? at a time do you think are around the whales
0: a number of companies i'd have to look um i don't know how many of them are still currently operating i know covid was right nice to some of the companies that are there um but it was normal on any given day to see five to ten boats around the whales at any given time
1: louise Uh.
0: And this was true of the humpbacks as well. Uh, Some of the really scary stuff I actually saw was was from the humpbacks because the humpbacks, they will gather in really big groups there. Like I think one of the largest groups I saw was probably around 30 humpbacks in a group. And on that particular day, the weather was really crappy. Mm -hmm. It, It was really hard to see anything. And there were tons of boats around these whales and a lot lot of big boats, and a lot of really little boats. Right. And it was really difficult to see just boats that were around, because the fog was coming in and out, and the snow was making it difficult to see. And these humpbacks, they looked really visibly irritated by the boats that were around. For sure. um, I mean, I saw them, they would tail lob, mm-hmm. and uh, tail slap, and it, it was in what appeared to be direct response to boats that were getting closer to them, and Um, I was concerned I was going to see someone's boat get flipped (laughs) by (laughs) a humpback Um, so I don't and that again that was a mix of commercial boats and just private boaters yeah definitely by far it was the private boaters that had the worst behavior which seems to be the standard pretty much anywhere you go
1: (laughs) I mean that makes sense just you know I mean they're probably like they're just out there for other reasons not necessarily for the animals and I feel like the people, at least like the one thing about professional outfits, is like they they understand that they're going around animals.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: to an extent. So yeah. Yeah. That's then, crazy.
0: The other thing, and uh in Norway and these areas, they also have the herring fishing boats, like the commercial fisheries. And it's it's quite interesting to watch the the killer whales and these boats kind of interact because the the orcas, they know if they hear those boats, they're going to get an easy meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, the, the boats, they're interested in catching the herring and they have the big uh, nets mm-hmm. and the whales will just pick off the fish that fall out of the net, basically. And so you'll see them right against the side of the boat, you know, trying to get the fish that fall out. And its it's quite amazing to see. I only got to see it happen once, but it's really impressive to watch these whales just kind of do whatever they want around these big ships. Yeah. And in uh, that since that's such a, a unique spectacle that you can't really see other places, um, a lot of the whale watching boats, they will hone in on that because they know those whales are gonna be there. They're gonna be, that's the only time I saw whales in Norway, killer whales at least, breach. Um, they get really active around the boats, they spy hop, they'll breach, they'll tail slap. It's like a big whale party basically. Mm -hmm. and i know in the past they've had problems with people trying to put snorkelers in the water with the whales and the active fishing gear (laughs) what (laughs) uh, yeah if if i remember right there was a couple of close calls with people snorkeling in the water with the whales and people trying to haul in the, the nets with the fish and so i think that was the point where the norwegian government while i was there they did put in a rule this is the only regulation i know of involving distances in whales and it wasn't even specific to the whales Um, they put in a rule I can't remember the exact number I think it was like 700 or 500 meters but you had to stay a certain distance away from active fishing gear and active fishing boats if you were a whale watching operator and you weren't allowed to have people in the water within a certain distance either so that was like the attempt to kind of control that (laughs) crazy situation that was going on Um, but that's That's, the only that's that's the the only regulation I know of
1: that is insane. Um what? Like that's ridiculous. Um I like do they do people like in Norway not sue companies when they get hurt because I'm like all of this just sounds like a liability. Oh my god. Um,
0: I there's a lot of paperwork that you sign before you go. Um makes sense.
1: Yeah. That's that sounds just like a lot of danger. Like nighttime like really truly like the one of the only apex predators on this planet getting in the water with them, like at basically night, that's insane. So, okay. You had mentioned earlier that you didn't, you hadn't heard much about this, but recently because of social media you've heard, or you've seen more of it. What do you, how do you think social media has impacted this, the industry and or the way that we interact with
0: whales? I think it's a blessing and I think it's a curse. <laughs> um, I think it can be a really great tool to reach people and to teach them, which is what I try to do. But I think it's also really easy for it to become like, how can I get the most likes? You know, what yeah. can I do to get the most comments on my posts? Um, Because what I was seeing in these these photos that were being posted like on Instagram they didn't seem to reflect what I was seeing going on in Norway mm. and so these, these photos are I mean they're beautiful you've got you know a snorkeler next to this huge massive killer whale or you know you see you get to see videos of people swimming around even with a hump mm-hmm. um, but what you don't see in those photos necessarily are the whales that might have been harassed to get to that point right so It's not necessarily the whales in the photos that I worry about because if they're at the point where you know they're in the water and they're photographing the whales that well those whales probably are fine mm-hmm. you know they probably didn't mind being around people but it's the ones where they had to you know they tried to chase them where they tried to try to get in the water but they were unsuccessful because the whales were, were evading them it's like the failed attempts that aren't photographed that I mm-hmm. worry about because that's a lot of what I, I saw Mm. over there and you know a lot of the times those photos you see that they're really beautiful and they get you know thousands of likes hundreds of comments but you know a lot of them I don't see much of an educational component to it it's a lot of this was the coolest experience of my life you know how amazing this was which is which is fine you know Mm -hmm. I get it but it it makes me wonder how many people see stuff like that and are like well i just want to go do that that's really cool you know
1: yes queen oh my god (laughs) i literally think this all the time like because i work on whale watching boats as well and um like that's one of the things that i get very frustrated with is there are a lot of these people who take really beautiful photos of the animals doing amazing things and there's no educational component we're not talking about the animals and it just feels very exploitive at times and I feel that it encourages a sense of entitlement around the animals that like we should be able to have these interactions or we should get closer, we should get a breach. And I have tons of people that will come on my boat and be like, when can I book to see a breaching whale? And I'm like, that is yeah, not I- how it works. I like in the most light way possible. Um but yeah I definitely would love I feel like if you're in a place of privilege where you have enough of a platform and you have Uh, camera gear and you can get to these places with these animals you should be speaking up for them and I I would I I think there's not enough of that in wildlife photography and it kind of like makes me really have a a negative relationship with wildlife photography
0: yeah and it's yeah it's a it's a hard balance to strike because you know there there are times where it's like I just want to show people how cool this is But also, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm, like you said, you know, I'm in a position where I, you know, I can tell people interesting facts about these animals or, you know, what's threatening them. And um, I think that's a really important part of social media. And yeah, like I said, it's it's a blessing and a curse, (laughs) because there's a lot of really great things you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the heart of it, I think most of the time, social media is, you know, it's it's a drive to get as many likes as you can, get all these comments. So it's, it's kind of a battle to, you yeah. know, make sure you're posting things that are informative and also not potentially being something that might encourage somebody to go and do something irresponsible to try to replicate that photo. Yeah. And it can be really little things. And, you know, I'm still learning myself. So like an example of that is more recently, you know like in Homer where I'm from, there are sea otters everywhere. I mean, you can't go anywhere near the beach that's seeing a sea otter. And people, when they when they would come on like the tours I was on their number one of their number one things besides whales to see <clears throat> was sea otters. And they wanted to get those cute photos where the otters are looking at you mm-hmm. um, and, things like, and things like that. and when I was just getting into wildlife photography, I had a lot of photos like that, where the otters are, they're, they're kind of sitting up, they're looking at you, and it looks really cute. Well, it took me a while until I learned that that's actually not that cute, when you realize that that's actually a kind of a stress response, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. looking at you because they're trying to think, do I need to dive, you know, is this yeah. thing gonna chase me, right, um, and Uh, There's a nonprofit called Sea Otter Savvy, and I know one of their kind of missions is to encourage people to photograph otters differently. You know, there's an emphasis on those really beautiful shots where the otter is looking at you and it looks really inquisitive. Um, But as cute as it might look to us, that's actually a a stressed out sea otter. Yeah. Having to decide whether or not it needs to burn calories to get away from you. And so I'm more conscious now about the kinds of photos I post because I want to make sure I'm showing people, you know, appropriate photography etiquette. You know, I don't want to post a photo that someone's going to try to go and replicate and in the process potentially hurt or stress out an animal.
1: Absolutely. I think that that's excellent. And I think, you know, a lot of it too, is like, even people who are very knowledgeable about wildlife and love wildlife and have the best intentions, like I wouldn't have known that that was a stress response of a sea otter.
0: It took me years to learn that. <laughs> and I live around them. Yeah. So it's, it's little things, you know, and, and I think it, it's tough because like, yeah, it's who would, who would think that
1: right unless people think too they're like well I do it one time and it's like yeah you do it one time but like how much time is everybody else doing it cumulatively around these animals like I'm not saying that ecotourism is bad and I I I do think that there is like a lot of value to ecotourism and, and to photography when done correctly when done in a way that's like respectful and it's education based. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that I get to work with a company where that is the case. And like, I've worked for companies where that is not the case. And like, that's really hard. And I think we just like owe it to the animals, you know, to do better. And I think, you know, maybe in the eighties and nineties when whale watching was like still new. And when all these things were still newer, I think those mistakes made more sense back then. Cause we didn't know, but I feel like we know too much now to continue to operate in unsustainable or harmful ways.
0: Yeah, and in Norway, I'm I'm interested in seeing if in the years to come, if if anything will change because you have these, you know, voluntary guidelines that try to encourage people to operate their boats in a way that minimizes the impact. But you know, voluntary is just that—it's voluntary. Yeah. You know, there's not a great incentive for for people to you know, follow those rules. And the other thing, and this kind of ties back into social media is uh, the expectations people have on some of these trips because, you know, uh, if you, if you're only seeing all these fantastic photos, you know, up close next to a whale or, you know, you're, you're in the water and everything's great, you know, you can't, you come to expect that when you go on a trip. So if the whales are not behaving like that, which 99% 99% of the time they're just doing their own thing you know they don't really care about what the people want um that can be kind of frustrating for passengers I think and so I think at times there can be more pressure on operators um in any part of the world yeah to possibly push the limit you know to to get an animal to maybe do something that's going to make your guests happy and and I don't think that happens too much but I do think social media can kind of contribute to these unrealistic expectations as to what a whale watching trip looks
1: like. 100%. 100%. I definitely like I try to like when I whenever I'm doing the little safety chat before we get on board, I try to tell people I'm like, "Okay, so just want to give you guys some realistic expectations for whale watching. We are probably going to see a whale breathe from a distance. Mm-hmm. There's a chance that we don't see a whale at all. Like, don't want to disappoint you guys, but just want to set you up for success and then you know, luckily in Monterey, a lot of the times those expectations are exceeded because we do have an abundance of wildlife here and our populations are healthy and active. Um, but I feel like, you know, that like nobody's going to be exercising all the time. Like how crazy would it be if, you know, say squirrels were watching people and they're like, why isn't it running? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like we, you can't just expect that all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, That's kind of why I I liked working where I worked in in Homer because we didn't advertise strictly as a whale watching trip. We said, we're gonna go look at wildlife. We might see a whale. Mm -hmm. So people kind of came into it. Most of the time, there were exceptions, understanding that we might see a whale today. Even if we don't, we're gonna see other stuff and then that's fine. And so when we were able to find a whale, which like I mentioned before, sometimes that happened to be every day Sometimes we would go a month between whale sightings. Um, Mm -hmm. But when we were able to show people the whales, 99% of the passengers were just thrilled to see it. Yeah. You'd occasionally get those few that asked me when it was going to breach or, you know, why isn't it closer to the boat? Or this is the wrong species of whale. I wanted to see the other one. Yeah. (laughs) um, Most of the time people were pretty pleasant. And it was interesting to go to Norway and to be on a strictly whale watching boat. because I was there doing research, I didn't interact too much with the passengers because I was busy trying to get data, uh, right. but it was definitely a different atmosphere compared mm. to what I was used to. You know, there was m- much higher expectations, you know, rather than just being happy to see a whale, um, a lot of people you know, were really wanting to see like one particular kind of behavior from a whale. Like some people really wanted to see beating orcas or a breaching humpback And that was different compared to what I was used to um, because, you know, whales don't do those things every day. Yeah. And there were, and another thing that I, I think makes a, a big difference and I'm hoping people, you know, operators in Norway will kind of catch on to is that, you know, the, the kind of the chaos of all of the boats up there, you know, they're not being like an orderly way of doing things. It also kind of, from a business perspective, it dampens the guest experience because if they're trying to crane their neck to see a whale through 10 other boats that are all around this pod or one whale, then it's not a great experience for them either. Like yeah, from a business perspective. Right. Um, so I don't know, I know when I was there, there was talk of hopefully introducing, you know, maybe some sort of regulations or laws. Um, But I do know it's, at least when I was there, it was kind of a touchy subject um, because there were more and more people arriving in the area, you know, running their companies there. And, you know, there's, there is competition between the companies. There's only a certain number of people, you know, passengers to go around. Right. Um, But I, I do hope they introduce some sort of regulations because it, it really did feel like the wild west of whale watching out there. It was very, very different. You know, in Homer, where I'm from, it, I was used to seeing maybe two other boats if we were watching whales. Um, and we, we had limits, you know, in Alaska, you've got from 2001, they implemented a law saying you have to stay a hundred yards away from humpback whales up here. Mm-hmm. And so we, followed the 100-yard guideline and law, and we always limited our time to around 30 minutes. Um, And since we went back and forth across the bay, we tried not to stop with the same whales more than once in a day. And so I was very used to those kinds of regulations. And so going to Norway, where it was very different, was a little startling to see. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm hopeful that there will be some sort of change. I mean, when I was there, they implemented that distance rule for fishing boats, which was more for the safety of people than it was the whales. But you know, perhaps the Norwegian government will do something. I don't know. (laughs) I (laughs) I feel like it's
1: standard everywhere for when there's not regulations, and then the regulations get discussed for people to like freak out um and not want to do it which like I mean I can understand from a business perspective like if you've created this experience and then like now you're not going to be able to do it that fear um of you know losing business but I think it definitely like there's still ways there are still ways to have amazing experiences with these wildlife without like causing a bunch of havoc
0: and when I was there You know, the the most concerning thing I saw was the snorkeling tours, because that Mm -hmm. seemed to be where a lot of the most aggressive behavior from the boats stemmed from. Um, That said, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the idea of swimming with cetaceans myself, but I do know that it can be done with minimal impact in some situations. Um, So, at the very least, I think that in Norway, there should be some sort of regulations around the snorkeling aspects, if nothing mm-hmm. else. Um, I don't think, you know, unlicensed people should just be getting in the water with the whales. I think that's a recipe for disaster at some mm-hmm. point. Um, I think it w- would be beneficial to, you know, have only professional and trained staff being able to offer these tours, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps limit it to um, you know, pods that don't have any calves with them, or pods that are a certain size, only attempting it with whales that are displaying certain behavioral traits. You know, limiting the number of times you can attempt to drop people in the water. Yeah. So there are different ways you could go about it. Um, whether or not that will happen, it's up to the people in Norway.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is true. I mean, there are a lot of studies that show too that self-regulated communities tend to do better than government regulated Mm -hmm. communities and you know I think a lot of that is like self-accountability and when you know the captains and the people in the community have a say I think it makes it go a little bit Mm -hmm. further you know rather than somebody just coming in and being like this is what you do now Mm -hmm. but also I do feel like even though there are certain regulations like then the next issue is enforcement like are they gonna have a way to enforce it
0: yeah when I was there, I did see um, the Norwegian Coast Guard was you know out and about going around um, and you know I don't know. The, the one regulation they do have is that distance from active fishing boats and gear. and I don't know how frequently that gets enforced um, mm-hmm. because it got implemented while I was there, so I didn't really get a chance to stay long enough to see like that in action. Uh, sure. So perhaps the Coast Guard could um, enforce it. You know, maybe they'd have to have another a program where, you know, it was enforced by like a nonprofit agency or something like that. But right. yeah, the enforcement side of things is is the trickiest part. Like, Definitely. so.
1: Yeah, I would say so, for sure. That's like that. I had no idea. I haven't really looked into that. I've heard that it's a thing. I've heard that people like people talk about it. Um, I feel like the nighttime thing, like to me, like as an orca lover, like somebody that wants to spend my time around these animals, that sounds terrifying, honestly. (laughs) Um,
0: It's also just really cold, like it was so cold. Yeah. Coming from someone that lives in Alaska.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's, it almost feels like it's not worth it. Um, so kind of switching gears here. So you have like a bit of a platform yourself that you use to educate people. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you started that and kind of what is your current role in the marine science world?
0: Well, I guess I start, I have my Instagram account. I started, I think it was 2016 and it was just a place to post whale photos. Like wasn't planning on doing anything fancy, just wanted to share the pictures that I had taken while I was working. And after a little while, it kind of morphed into this more education-oriented platform where I wasn't just sharing pictures of, of animals that I saw. I was trying to, you know, pair that with an educational caption or, you know, information about the whales in that photo or or some other kind of educational component. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I I discovered I really, really enjoy education and outreach because that's part of what I was doing, you know, as a naturalist working on the boats I was working on. And it was, it was an interesting way to add another dimension to that in a different way online rather than face-to-face because I could reach a lot more people than I could at my, my job. And I felt like I could, you know, make at least a little bit of a difference. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I do feel like I have at this point, you know, I have, I've had people tell me like, you know, like some of the stuff you share, like I had no idea that was a thing, or I didn't know about this problem or this yeah. issue. You know, I had no idea. And so that makes me feel good. Like when, when I get messages or comments like that, um, because for me, the goal is not, am I going to get the most likes on this picture? Right. Or the most engagement it's how can I, tell people information about these animals in a way that's uh, you know engaging that, that catches people's eye and also teaches them something important right and that's been kind of difficult to learn how to do on my own but I feel like I've done at least an okay job at it yeah um, so yeah so right now I do a couple of different things so I, I still am very much into wildlife photography Um. So I spend my time when I can, you know, going out looking for killer whales, humpback whales. Uh, Right now there are belugas around Mm -hmm. where I live. They're like a 10 minute drive away. I can just go stand on the the cliff side and watch them. Um, I also do um, some volunteer work. So I volunteer with Happy Whale. Oh, cool. Um, And I, you know, it's it's geared mostly towards humpback whales Mm -hmm. um, and photo ID of humpbacks. But uh, I do the killer whale photo ID since there's no algorithm for that yet every time somebody uploads a photo of a killer whale it gets assigned to me and then my job is to if i can track down which particular whale that is and amazing it's uh most of the sightings on happy whale for orcas right now is like in alaska uh, british columbia washington um but there's a lot of uh tourism that happens down in antarctica now and so uh there's no publicly available photo ID catalogs for killer whales in Antarctica. Mm. so I wasn't really able to do much with those. I feel bad people would submit all these great pictures and I was like, well, I don't have any. Yeah. I can't match them. But I talked with, um, Ted Cheeseman who founded the website Mm -hmm. and we actually just ended up making like a happy whale version of an Antarctic catalog. Okay. So it's still small. Um, I know tourism has been down the last year or so because of COVID. There hasn't been a lot of stuff happening down there, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping if more people are submitting pictures, then you know I can start making more matches within the catalog itself. I've made a couple already. Um, Awesome. But trying to build that up, and then similarly with uh, killer whales in the Eastern Tropical Pacific, Mm -hmm. there is a catalog from Noah, but it's very old. It's Is that like, from like the eighties or something? Yeah, I think it's nineties maybe, maybe 2008, but it's dated. There's a couple of whales in there that you can reliably identify, but most of them aren't in those catalogs because they did not exist when the catalogs were made. So um, I've also recently started doing a happy whale version of the Eastern Pacific killer whale catalog. Mm-hmm and have made a couple cross matches with that one. And I'm hoping, you know, the more more photos people submit, the more matches can be made. And I don't know if it'll ever get to the level of the number of humpback sightings on there and like the the algorithm's ability, but it's something.
1: Yeah, definitely something. I think that Happy Whale is like, probably one of the best things that could have happened for like the ecotourism industry.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it really does give people a meaningful connection to Mm -hmm. science and kind of like helps, you know, shed some light on how we understand these animals. Um, Mm. And like we use happy whale on the boat all the time. I'm really bad at submitting photos, but I know a lot of my passengers do and Mm. a lot of the other naturalists in Monterey Bay do. Um, and I feel like that's so fun for people to be able to track their whales.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: is there a like catalog of the um, Antarctic ones, but it's just not publicly accessible? Is that?
0: Yeah, if, if I remember correctly, um, I think the researchers at NOAA have one mm-hmm. or a couple, um, but I, as far as I can tell, they've never been shared anywhere. Okay. And you know every research group has their own catalog some of them choose to make it public some of them don't and you know it's it's either way it's fine um I just I was feeling so bad that people were submitting all these pictures hoping to get them like I can't do anything but then we just made our own so if if those catalogs ever do become public and there are matches then we can update the name naming system within the that's good, existing whales, because that's, that's what's happened with, uh, the catalogs, like for different humpback populations as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they they all were identified with their own happy whale ID at first, uh, later on, if researchers want to submit their own catalogs, they can just be cross-matched and then updated.
1: Yes, that's good. So very cool. Um, that's awesome. So where can people find your Instagram?
0: Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's under northern.naturalist dot uh, the dot being a period in between mm-hmm. the two words. Um, I have an equivalent Facebook page under the same name. Um, I post most frequently on Instagram. It's just a better platform, and I'm more used to. But I occasionally mm-hmm. post on Facebook as well. They're usually the same posts, more or less. Um, yeah, that's the best place to find me if people wanna ask a question or send a message. Um, I try to on Tuesdays, if I have time to do it, um, I do what I call trivia Tuesdays uh, where I open up like the little question box and people, if they have questions about marine mammals or cetaceans or whatever, they can submit them. Um, I usually can't get to all of them in one day uh, because I end up getting quite a bit, but I try to answer as many as I can. period so that's one thing I do if people did have questions or anything they wanted to ask
1: yeah definitely well that is awesome so definitely go follow her um one question I always ask people on the podcast is what can we learn from the whales
0: so much (laughs) where to begin um well specifically from killer whales I think you know, one thing I feel like I've learned from the whales personally is the value of patience. Um, yes. And I say that because there was a period of five years when I did not see a single killer whale, despite really trying hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I went whale watching several times um, in Seward, which is a good place for whale sightings. I went to Victoria and British Columbia no whale, no orcas there. My first year working as a naturalist on a boat that saw whales, didn't see any orcas. Yeah. So I went and then five years and, you know, I was getting kind of despondent at that point. And I thought, you know, I'm just never going to see an orca again. And the next year, um, I did, you know, I started seeing them again. And I remember that first sighting after five years, it was like, okay, that was worth waiting for, Mm. you know, like, So for me, I guess I would say you can learn, you know, patience from whales. I love that. Nobody's given me that answer yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I feel like whales are worth the wait. Maybe that's going to be the title of this podcast episode, (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like they definitely are like, even if you only have like one encounter your whole life, you know? I feel like it's worth it no matter how many times it may take or you know yeah. how much patience. That's a great one. Awesome. Well, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners?
0: Um, I guess I would say if you are going to go on a whale watching trip, um no matter where you're going in the world, it's always a great idea to take the time to research where you're going what the animals in that area, some of the conservation issues they face, and when you're choosing a whale watching operator, you know, have due diligence, look into some of their values, whether or not they do research on these trips, you know, if you can read reviews or talk to people that have been on those trips before, you can get an idea for, you know, if if they're a responsible operator, if they put the welfare of the animals first, and if they Help contribute to education and research on the animals. And I think those are some of the most important things to think of when you're picking a whale watching trip. So always do your, do your research.
1: Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was absolutely a pleasure to have you on here. Yeah,
0: this was fun.
1: Awesome.